Hello all you beautiful people out there who uh, spend a little chunk of your time every fortnight to listen to us. Now you join us here on another episode of The Strange and Deadly Show. Uh, Apple hasn't kicked us out of their database yet so we can only be grateful for that. God knows with some of the bullshit I spout. Uh, my name is Chris Clayton of course and I am joined by... Tom Elliott. That's Tom Elliott there, folks. The internet's Tom Elliott. <laughs> so here on the Strange and Deadly show, we've made it our mission to cover the Section 3 list, which is associated with the video nasties. We haven't said that for a while. Of course, everybody knows. But anybody who's new, that's what we do. Um, in many ways, we consider ourselves the sister show to the Video Nasties podcast, which was put together by our good friend Chris Brown. Um, he covered the actual nasties, uh, and we're tackling the other list. So... Uh, so far, we've covered 12 films from that list. We're going to scratch another two off the list today. Uh, Tom, do you want to spill the beans on what we're going to be talking about this time around? I do, Chris. I'm quite excited about this one. You know, mm. it is quite a horror-heavy list, but it, it's got some nice little diversions along the way. And this is one of them. I think it's going to be a fun, enjoyable time. I don't want to speak too soon, but you never know. Um and I'm sad that there's not more films of this type on this list because I'm quite a fan of uh, the kind of film we're going to be doing tonight. And we've titled it Kick-Ass Women mm-hmm. because we have two films with a female lead and they both kick-ass, basically. Um, so we paired them up together because they do make a nice double bill. And uh, the films that we've got are the famous, the very famous Foxy Brown. Yes. And also a less famous one called, if you're in the US and probably other territories, it's called Firecracker. I believe in the UK it was called Naked Fist. So uh, two films that maybe try and do the same thing in a, in a lot of ways, but we'll see how successful they are. Uh, right, right. Yeah, I wonder why Firecracker isn't that famous, Tom. It's uh, <laughs> quite extraordinary reasoning behind that, I'm sure. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, both films have a kick-ass female lead in them. Uh, so that much we can say. That's definitely something they've got in common. Um, as far as the quality goes, if there's any difference in quality, well, we'll let you know, won't we? I'm trying not to drop any hints at all. Uh, why don't we begin, Tom, with uh, a bit of a classic film, I think. I think most people would agree who are into this sort of sub-exploitation. Blaxploitation. Now, there's a word for you. Tell us about Foxy Brown, Tom. I will, I will. I think, um, you know, I'm no expert on blaxploitation. It's something that's always interested me, though, so I'm going to enjoy digging into this one. It's Foxy Brown, released in 1974, written and directed by Jack Hill. Foxy Brown tells the story of our voluptuous titular character. Did you do that on purpose? Mm-hmm. I thought you might. Played by <laughs> Pam Greer, a bold young woman living life in a drug-addled city. Her brother Link, played by Antonio Fargus, is involved in the drug scene himself, owing money to a group of deadly drug dealers. At the beginning of the movie, he manages to evade the dealers, seeking the help of Foxy, who aids him in escaping. Upset at missing a chance to squeeze Link for the money he owes them, the drug dealers, led by the villainous Catherine, nevertheless continue their prostitution operation, using their girls to oil the cogs of the city's great political machine. Meanwhile, Foxy Brown visits the hospital and meets with her boyfriend, a former undercover cop named Dalton Ford, who has undergone plastic surgery in order to escape his old life, now renamed Michael Anderson, he accepts his new identity and he and Foxy leave the hospital to begin life anew without fear of retaliation. 
However, Link is quick to notice that Foxy's apparent new boyfriend looks similar to the man she claimed ran away from her. He quickly realises that this is in fact the same man, and desperate to square things with the drug dealers who have been looking for Dalton, he reveals that Michael is the man they're looking for. Seizing their opportunity to strike, the dealers shoot and kill Michael outside Foxy's place. Stricken with grief, Foxy starts on a vengeful journey that begins with questioning her brother for information. Now that she has names and an idea of who is at the top of the chain, she'll use her beauty to charm her way into the prostitution ring and poison it from the inside out. So begins Foxy's tale of revenge, though it doesn't all go to plan. Foiled early on, Foxy's journey takes her through torture and a stay at a hellish ranch. Her brother also meets a grisly end. This is all enough for her to develop a concrete final plan and with the help of the local neighbourhood gang, she'll do everything she can to take out the drug dealers once and for all and avenge her loved ones. What are you trying to do? Kill me? I damn well ought to, you rotten bastard. And if I don't, you better thank the Lord you're my brother because there's no other reason. Oh, baby, look, let me alone. I didn't do nothing to you. <sighs> you know damn well what you did. Now, I'm not going to stand here and argue with you. Now, you better tell me who you talk to because it's either them or you. I swear, baby, I don't know what you're talking about. Ah! Now, I only got so much control, and I'm liable to put one of these right between your eyes, no matter what Mama'd say. Baby, look. Look, I, all I know is what I hear. I want the name, Link. The name! Look, all right, all right. Catherine Wall. Uh, but don't you go messing with her, baby. She's mean. Catherine Wall? What does she have to do with the dope operation? She's the protection, the fixer. Without her, there's nothing. How does she do it? She runs a stable of the finest call girls in the country. Yeah, but they don't go out for just money. You got to be somebody big. You got to be a big man, a congressman, a, a, a judge, or on the grand jury. OK, thanks. What are you doing? Well, no, 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 what no. Hey, Foxy, what's going on? Now, come on, cut that shit out. You're moving out, brother. Out of town. And I mean it, Link. You think you're back in with those people, but they got to stick a dynamite up your ass and the fuse is burning. You understand me? Now, I want you out. Chris, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of this one. It's been a favourite of mine for a while. I'll let that cat out the bag, but go on. What do you think? Well, I mean, where do you begin with this, really? The the sort of the historical significance of it, of Pam Greer, of the character, the film itself, really, um, it, it is an enormous legacy that's there. Um, I really enjoyed it, you know. It, it, it I mean, I, I don't want to sort of... I don't want to cover myself in hyperbole with it, mm. uh, but, you know, and I have problems with it as well, I have to say. I don't think it's a perfect movie by any means, but um, I think that it is one of the, I think it's one of the best examples of this kind of movie. Black Exploitation. now, I have to say, just to give you a, just a tiny bit of history about, um, you know, my association with them. I mean, look, I'm part African. So, you know, my, my cousin, in fact, was had a Nigerian father. That's a whole story, don't I don't need to go into on the podcast, but um, but so, and I had him as an influence, so I I was always exposed to some of 
the movies in this I don't know if you can you call it a genre black exploitation I suppose you can mm. um, certainly they were movies that were made for a specific demographic um, of varying quality but certainly as I've grown up I've seen some films that are very entertaining if not particularly good so for example some of the Rudy Ray Moore stuff like Dolomite and the Disco Godfather um, which are not great movies but they're very entertaining because they're quite bizarre uh, and and Blackula, you know, the two Blackula <laughs> fil- films, I, I happen to really enjoy those. And I was always aware of Pam Greer. I actually saw her. I, I hadn't seen this movie and I hadn't seen Coffee either. But I had seen Pam Greer in a bunch of stuff anyway. I'd seen her in Women in Cages, which is an old prison movie. And I'd seen her in Jackie Brown. And the one one of the things you, you're going to take many things away from this because there are some very, very good things in here, some very good points that are made. Um, but I think if you take nothing else away from this, it's going to be Pam Greer, isn't it? That she is just spirited and energetic and has such great presence on the screen. And that's the, the number one thing that I took away from this. It's my first time watching it. I really enjoyed it. Good, good. Okay. There's, there's a quite a bit to talk about, I think, with this one. Um, it is very influential. I mean, look at those opening credits, for starters, the, the sort of coloured backgrounds. You've got Pam Greer dancing in the front. I don't know whether they're the first to do something like this. There was probably a whole lot of stuff doing similar things at the time. I don't know, but this will probably be the one that you remember. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, it's been imitated ever since. If someone was going to do some sort of... Uh, homage or spoof of the times it probably have a, an opening like this you know but it's great it's done with with joy and not tongue-in-cheek it's just there a celebration of the music and you know how beautiful Pam Greer is and, and stuff and uh, it's a great opening I absolutely love that it really is I mean Jack Hill knows he knows that Pam Greer is, a, is an absolutely gorgeous woman and he makes the most of it. And you see that right from the very beginning, this opening scene, like you say, it's multicolored and it's quite psychedelic. And it's basically Pam Greer dancing in various outfits. And she wears a lot of outfits in this movie, actually. A lot of outfit changes. And uh, yeah, it it, right, it it sets you up right from the get-go. You've got the music by, um, by uh, Willie Hutch, William Hutch, uh, which is just very funky, you know, soulful. Uh, so right from the get-go it, it gets you going there's a lot of energy to it yeah yeah and, and i think the next thing that struck me we've spoke about this before and i think it was actually the first episode where we were saying we're not particularly big fans of cannibal movies and we like the sort of urban environment uh, in our horror movies but that extends beyond horror which you know this clearly is not a horror movie but i i just love the the time and the place as well you know the the city a certain amount of urban decay i i like that kind of thing and when we're introduced to antonio fargas character sort of nervously going along the streets there and he's getting followed and he goes over to this hot dog stand a hot dog stand on an open street in the middle of the night you know it's fascinating to me i don't know whether such a thing existed or not um or whether it's just an invention for the movie but if it did Great, you know, I love that kind of stuff. I love Americana in in all its forms. It doesn't have to be, you know, the the sort of fifties retro Americana. In, in a lot of ways, I love it. And um, 
and he and he goes over to this uh, hot dog stand and he, he gets a taco and the cops come over and sit and have a coffee and so on and it's uh, it's just fascinating to me that the the place uh, where it's set I love it yeah it's very grounded isn't it and gritty there's nothing there's nothing fantastical about this movie you know there's nothing it feels as if you know you could argue maybe the plastic surgery that that Dalton Ford has is you know is maybe a little bit over the top but yeah. um, but other than that it, it's it feels to me like some of these things could really happen and perhaps were happening you know i mean certainly there was a lot of gang activity at that point in that particular decade that was happening a lot so i i would i would say that there probably was there are aspects of truth in there mm. um but yeah I, I love that opening i mean antonio fargus anyway to, to begin with is is well, no, he is the guy, as soon as you see his face, you kind of immediately know who he is. He's one of those character actors who's been in so many different things over the years, has had quite a long career. And so immediately you're seeing him, and I'm with him from the very beginning, even though he's a bit slimy, isn't he? He's that sort of, uh, he's a petty low-level guy, you know, who's always trying to catch catch the sort of next thing that's going on. But he, he's never going to be... The big man he's never going to be the top dog he's always going to be no. this level probably always trying to play catch up because for whatever reason things aren't always going to go his way and he's always going to be owing someone money or he's going to be trying to get hold of some drugs to feed his own habit i don't necessarily see him as a bad guy that's the funny thing and considering what he does actually ends up with someone getting murdered that's a, i suppose a bold statement but I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying when I say that? I absolutely do. I mean, to your first point that you were making about how he's, you know, he's never going to be a guy who's going to rise up to to another level. He, even he makes that point actually early on in the film when um, he and Foxy manage to escape the drug dealers who are after him, and they they get back to the house, and he's saying there that you know I can't remember what the exact what the exact dialogue is, but it's something to the effect of, look, I can't play basketball. I'm not a doctor. You know, there are all these things that I can't do. Therefore, I feel that I can only be on this particular level, which is it's not a great level to be on. He certainly hasn't got um, any particularly great career prospects. And I think he'll probably will always end end up being that guy who's just addicted to drugs, strung out, um, is a low life, basically. As far as your second point goes, no, absolutely. I, I never thought he was a bad guy. I just thought he was foolish. Mm. You know, yeah. I think he just makes bad decisions and people who are addicted to drugs uh, very often do that you know he's looking for first of all not only is he addicted to drugs he's in trouble because he owes money to this you know to these dealers just a, a just basically just a sort of drug they run a sort of drug den prostitution ring so i, I see it as foolishness and desperation myself yeah i think if we, if we look at the bigger picture and um, possibly why these films were doing so well is he was tapping into something there, the kind of hopelessness of, you know, I'm not going to pretend I know what it's like, but the sort of frustration of people who, you know, young black males, young black women who are trying to do good, but always getting the door slammed in their face, you know? Yeah. And he's kind of like, well, what else do you expect me to do? You know, I, I can't do anything else. And I think that frustration is is sort of key to that character and there's probably a lot of people in the audience who tapped into that and you know we we can take it to the next step that um it could even be people who have done not necessarily black people but white people people of any race who have done something foolish in early life 
that has dogged them ever since. And maybe they've tried to change their ways, but people won't accept them for anything else than the criminal act that they did when they were younger. So, you know, I'm not excusing criminality, but people who have had a life like that as well will be very frustrated. And what else do you expect me to do? Because no one will believe that I've, I'm trying to do any better and the doors keep slamming in my face. So, you know, I can really see that being a, a big thing at the time. Well, I, and I also think not just at the time. I think that that problem exists even now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there are people on the breadline. There are people who can't get a foot in the door, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things that happens. And, and to those of, you know, I'm the kind of person who I'm very grateful for the things I have because um, it's very possible that I, that I might not have them. And so um, so I, I understand that. I, I also think that, that what this movie does what it establishes for me, I think it's a it's a nice snapshot of a very real time in America where black people were still um, treated as as minorities, as people who were not really meant to be mixed in with another race. I mean, in fact, many of the white people in this movie, in fact, it can be argued that they're made to be, I think, almost maybe a bit too villainous in that they're you know there's the N word is thrown around a lot. I think one of the great things about this movie is. And it ultimately comes back down to Pam Greer's character, Foxy Brown. Uh, this was really one of the first times that you're seeing a strong, independent black woman mm-hmm. um, standing up for her rights. And I think proving, I mean, uh, what, from what we know about black exploitation, is that prior to this film, most of the movies were, were, were led by men. And women were kind of side characters, really. And were, were caricatures, if you like. And so what this represents really is, is in many ways, is, you know, Jack Hill putting across a message and also Pam Greer saying, look, um, here's a woman who's going to kick you in the face and ask questions later. Um, I think it, it, it's a it's a very good commentary on, on what was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the Black Panther movement, for example, was still, I, I believe, was still going on there at that point. Uh, but even if you, you, you sweep all that to one side, what you have here is just quite an entertaining movie as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it does work on those two levels. It's it's funny that you say that some of the, the, the white people are perhaps um, quite broadly villainous in, in their racism and, and so on, uh, and they are. But I think the way it sort of creeps in gradually is done quite well because, you know, Antonio Vargas going to the hot dog stand in the beginning, you know, the cops are sitting there having their coffee, I think a more heavy-handed film would probably have had the cops sitting there, you know, making racial slayers and so on. And we do see racist cops later on in the movie. Um, but it sort of creeps in over time to the point where, to me, it, it is very prevalent, but it doesn't seem to be the whole point of things. The The actual message behind the film is done a lot more cleverly than just white people making racial slayers. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not saying that. I mean, but I also have to say, I mean, for starters, the film was written and directed by a white man, mm-hmm. which I, I would say, getting into a weak point. I mean, maybe we'll get to it a little, a little bit later, but um, but no, I, I would definitely say that, that that it's not it's not too much. They don't push it too far. Yeah, yeah. But like you say, it's a good time. It's a romp. It's it's fun. It it straddles those two sort of worlds really well. Pretty well paced. Uh, maybe a couple of dips here and there, uh, but Foxy kicks ass, you know, other characters do as well. We have a lot of fun scenes and it's funny at times as well. You know, that, it is, you know, the, the scene with the judge where they just <laughs> totally take the piss out of him and, uh, you know, he ends up out in the corridor. 
is great. You know, there's a lot of lot of fun stuff in here. There is. I mean, I, and I didn't expect that to be honest. I, when the judge said, "I was laughing my ass off," you know, and I didn't expect that. I thought the movie would kind of take itself a bit too serious, and it doesn't. I mean, at the end of the day, they know that this is supposed to be entertainment. I agree with you that I think the pace dips a bit um, in a couple of places. I mean, it's not it's not too bad, but there were. I mean, there were a couple of times when I was watching it that I thought I would quite like for there to be a bit more revenge and a bit less talking, you know. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I still think it, it comes together quite nicely. I mean, sort of working through the plot here, I know, we, you know, we don't want to spend too much time doing that. But so we have we have the, the death of Michael Anderson or the Dalton Ford. He ends up having plastic surgery to get away from his life as a as a as a cop. Um, this is Foxy Brown's fella. And the story that she's used, I guess, is that he ran away from her. When in actual fact, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, she's protecting him. He's sort of going into hiding, having plastic surgery and re-emerging as a different person. I'm not sure that that was entirely successful, really. <laughs> and if you look at the picture of him in the paper, he doesn't look that different. Um, and, you know, uh, Link works out pretty quickly that this is actually the same guy, just with a bit of plastic surgery. Um, you know, pleasant enough characters, not really in it that long. But anyway, his death then spurs her on. Now, I will say her decision to suddenly become some sort of vengeful, you know, um, uh, girlfriend. Uh, I, I, th- I think the transition, it, it happens a bit too quickly. Um, you know, she's questioning Link because he's the one who gave away that Michael is, in actual fact, the, the um, uh, Dalton, the the person that they were looking for the, mm-hmm. the uh, drug, drug gang was looking for and so she's questioning him and and almost in the next scene she's decided to to pretend to be interested in becoming a prostitute so that she can get into the ring and it happens very quickly and, and she's very sort of cool calm and collected under that and i think that that there's no real transition there the way that i sort of explained that to myself though to sort of get rid of that complaint was by saying well look maybe she was just always a very cool person under pressure um so maybe i can excuse it for that i do feel that there's a there's a the transition is a bit quick though yeah i mean i'll take that on board i i don't never really felt it myself to be honest but i see what you're saying i see what you're saying i mean she could have been earlier in life not such uh you know she might have dabbled in criminality herself earlier on and then Mm -hmm. grown up because everyone's got free will you know just because you start life that way doesn't mean you end up that way and you know being in that world has made her a bit as armed with certain skills but the movie certainly doesn't tell us that so that's all just you know supposition well what we do know is that dalton has been training her how to use a gun because she carries around that little gun, the smallest gun in the world. Um, not sure a bullet could do much to you unless it hit you in the eye or the head. But um, but yeah, so, so yeah, I, I definitely take on board what you're saying there as as well. I would have to say, I mean, since I'm pointing out something that I felt was a weakness, I mean, that complaint was very, very slight. Um, mm. And so is this one, really. The movie was written by Jack Hill, who I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a bit more about in it once we've got, got through the plot here. I, I, I found that some of the dialogue... To be difficult to swallow, principally because I knew it was written by a white guy. Mm. And some of it is very much, you know, well, well, this is what black people sound like, you know. Um, Just a little bit of it. But um, I found that a little bit difficult to contend with sometimes. Just in a few places, it's like, you know... um, Oh, there's that scene when she comes out of the hospital with with uh, Dalton. I'll just call him Dalton because 
you know, it's easier. Um, comes out of the hospital with Dalton and they're walking around. There's this big scene that happens outside where the neighbourhood, they call themselves a neighbourhood community. They're basically a gang. Mm. Um, they round up one of the one of these drug dealers and they um, whack him, put him into a car. And uh, <laughs> at one point she's talking to the guy and she says, dynamite. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I mean, I can imagine Jack Hill like, oh, that's probably what a black woman would say. And it's like, oh, I don't know, Jack. But... You know, again, it's a slight complaint, but I had that issue. I would imagine you probably didn't, but I might be a bit more sensitive to it just because, you know, my half of my, on one side, half of my family is black. And um, so I was a little bit sensitive to that, I have to admit. No, no, I, I see what you're saying. I did sort of wince slightly at a few lines here and there. It's like I remember reading Tomb of Dracula when I was younger, uh, the old comic that introduced mm-hmm. Blade. And I think that was uh, maybe written by Marv Wolfman. I can't remember, but it was the same with the, that character Blade. He was like, "Hey, Daddy, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm coming out with all this stuff," and it was just like, "Oh my God!" It, it was, it was cringe-inducing. Thankfully, this wasn't that bad. But no. I can, I can definitely see what you're saying. So, um, so where are we? I mean, she infiltrates the ring. Uh, she, <laughs> <laughs> she. Has... She infiltrates the ring, yes, <laughs> and then and then she has this uh, incident with the judge. You know these these stupid old white guys, just uh, you know who are so easy to buy off with just some pretty girls and so on. It's um... yeah, and you also have that character there, by the way, who's the the young girl who's also a black woman, mm-hmm. um, who is. Uh really feels that she can't escape the prostitution ring and her son her little boy turns up outside when they're getting ready to go and meet with the judge and and i did have i don't think that woman is a particularly good actor no. but um but i had sympathy for that character certainly yeah i mean i, I agree she wasn't the greatest actress um but there was a certain strung out junkie quality to her yeah so so then you have the the scene with the judge um which is the, the most comical scene I think in the movie because basically they they take this guy's pants off. He's this old guy who apparently has a thing for black women, and they lay him down on the bed. They pull his underpants down and they they make fun of his junk. Mm. And it's quite a funny scene. It is. And then they sort of sling him out of the room, embarrass him, and then he ends up accidentally sort of exposing himself to a, a woman there. And then there's another there's another group of older women who come along and then whack him with an umbrella and everything. And it just and he, you know falls over a bloody. Uh, falls over a, a cart of um was it cakes or tea or whatever it is i mean it just is it's it's a ridiculous moment it's the most comical moment in the movie by far um yeah and you know some people could argue that maybe it, it kind of feels a bit out of place in what's quite a serious movie that makes a number of points ultimately about prostitution and drugs and uh, but it but it's it gives you a bit of a breather because it gets quite serious after that doesn't it it does because in a lot of way this is the pivotal scene because because they've done this to the judge, the people who they want to get off in court, which was the whole point of sending the prostitutes over, don't get off. Uh, so at that point, they know that Foxy is kind of out to sabotage them rather than uh, work for them. And uh, yeah, it's from then on, it, it gets quite dark and, and Foxy ends up at the ranch. Yeah, and it's this ranch where these two old guys live. And basically, what I guess what they must do is, you know, Catherine, who's the leader of this gang, if there are any girls who act up or decide that they want to quit, 
they send them off to this ranch, plough them with heroin until they have an addiction and therefore they don't want to leave or try to escape because they're addicted to this stuff. And then and they basically get raped and used by these these guys who are there and then they end up selling the girls into slavery. And it's horrible. You know, it's 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 a horrible thing. And and yeah, it it it, it becomes um, much darker than I thought it would, to be honest. I sort of thought, well, this is going to be a rollicking kind of action movie, yeah. so to speak. And it, and it and then it kind of it slows down, but in a way that I found quite fascinating because immediately I'm like, I want her to get away from this. Yeah, yeah. There's even it's not that graphic, but you know, let's not sugarcoat it. She's raped by that guy, the the bald guy with the moustache. They don't do it explicitly, but it happens. I'm quite sure that it happens. Yeah. Um. So it, it is quite nasty, and I know you and I like a bit of revenge, so we kind of cheer and foxy on when she uh, eventually does escape. Yes, and she. Uh, fashions uh, a bunch of coat hangers into some sort of lethal weapon and, <laughs> and smacks one of the guys' faces with it. I think she tears his eye out, I'm not sure. And then, yeah, and sets the place on fire, kills the guys and manages to escape. And so what we're leading to now is the finale. And this, I think, is is this is where it ramps up. And this is, is my favourite section of the movie, I think, because it, it, the, it had dipped a little bit, even though I was quite fascinated by what was going on. But the pace of it really improves. Um, she decides to form this plan. So she gets together with some of the neighbourhood community guys, this gang, um, who basically are trying to help clean up the streets. These are guys who can help her try to take the uh, the drug dealers down. And part of that plan is trying to find the, um, the pilot of the plane. He's a guy who basically makes drops for them, um, provides them with drugs, and he gets paid for it. And she meets this guy in a bar... And it's Sid Haig. Sid Haig, yeah. The wonderful Sid Haig. Now, if you don't know, I've actually got this in my trivia section. but um, So let me read this, actually, just because it, it makes sense to put it here. Um, I wrote here, No, your eyes do not deceive you. The pilot Hayes in this film is played by a young Sig Sid Haig. Uh, Jack Hill met Haig in the 60s and cast him in his short film from 1960, The Host, um, which I think is on the Spider Baby Blu-ray from Arrow Video. Um which I do have up there. Uh, the two have remained friends ever since, and Haig has featured in eight of, of Hill's films to date, including Coffee, this film, Spider Baby, and uh, The Big Bird Cage, and several, other, several others. Uh, Sid Haig, of course, would go on to achieve success and acclaim thanks to Rob Zombie, who cast him in his films House of 1000 Corpses and The Devil's Rejects many years later as uh, Captain Spaulding, mm. I believe. Um, which is a great character, and he's a great actor, isn't he? He is. He's a lot of fun. He can. Uh, he's got a, a certain quality where he can play slimy and nasty and horrible, but there's still part of you that quite sort of likes what he's doing. Yeah, he, he's very good that way. Well, he's he's got that sort of charming edge to him. I mean, it, you know, not to, to talk about his personal life too much, but he's married to a woman who's like thirty years younger younger than him, and I think you can understand why because he's got. He has got that charming quality and that deep voice, you know. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, Tom, deep voice guys get the most action. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> Unlike us squeaky fools. Um, so, yeah, anyway, she meets Sid Haig, uh, the pilot. She flies out to where they are um, at this, this airfield, and they're waiting there to do the drug deal. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a sort of, I don't know what you call him, like a sort of sidekick that the character of Catherine has, whose name is Steve, I think? Right. Is that right? Uh, I can't remember. It's her lover. Oh, the, um, like the main guy, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. 
And so he's there, um, quite a horrible guy, actually. He's the one who ended up shooting um, Link dies, and so does his girlfriend. He's the one who ends up shooting them. Yeah. Oh, no, actually, I think the girl gets her throat cut, doesn't she? Um, That's right. But, but, but he kills Link anyway, um, trying to find find out um, Foxy's whereabouts. And so we're there, and anyway, the, the neighbourhood community gang catches him, and he wonders, well, what are they going to do with me? They cut his cock and balls off, Tom. They cut... <laughs> The old meat and two vegetables off, and you don't get to see it. But I don't know, I was feeling it a bit. I think we all felt that one. I think we all felt <laughs> that one a bit. But, um, yeah, it was a good moment. It's very odd sort of dynamic between him and... Uh, Kath- is it Catherine? Yes. The, the main villain, because he obviously isn't that into her, you know, she, yeah. but she loves him madly. I don't know what, what that was all about, but, you know, it was there. Um, but, yeah, great way of uh, getting her revenge, I think. I mean, she, she even says that he's still around. I don't think she killed him, did she? No, no. What she, what she did was they, they cut off his particulars and they put him in a jar. <laughs> and then, because um, what's happened here, basically, is, you know, Pam Grier's turned up in this plane with the pilot. And she ends up using the plane to to uh, kill one guy. He gets caught up in the, you know, in the blades, the propellers at the front. Um, and then she just causes mayhem there, and so does the gang. And then she ends up going to the place where Catherine stays, their sort of drug den, if you like. And she confronts Catherine. The way that she's get, that she wants to get back at Catherine, the way that she knows it would hurt her the most, is um, through Steve. Because I hope his name is Steve. <laughs> Apologise if it isn't. Um, but I'm just going to call him Steve anyway, because nothing to do about it now. Um, and so what she does is she presents, she gives her a bag and tells her to look in it. And inside the bag is, you know, Steve's Steve's stuff. His, uh, his particulars are there in that jar. And, of course, Catherine goes nuts immediately. Like you say, there's a strange thing there. She sort of, she's majorly, majorly into him in a big, big way. And he's really not, you can tell he's quite tired of her. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and there's that sort of final showdown, isn't there? It's quite out there considering how restrained a lot of other stuff in the movie is, I suppose. But, um, you know, it is what it is. It's, it finishes the movie up nicely. And uh, what else can you say? Yeah, well, she, the funny thing is she doesn't actually kill Catherine, mm. which is what you're thinking is going to happen. What she actually does is she shoots her and then says, well, look, at the end of the day, I'm going to leave you to suffer knowing that your man can never be complete again. Um, you can never have sex with each other again, you know, penetrative sex anyway. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, so he's been emasculated and that's sort of the end of it. And that's your punishment. Um, I, I wasn't expecting that. I thought she would get rid of her because I, I think that keeping them both alive could be a mistake, you know, in it, terms of... It could be because, you know, if you cut my junk off, I think I would be out for revenge. So, you know, make sure you don't do that, Chris. If you cut my junk off, Tom, I would uh, fashion it into a hat <laughs> and I would wear the hat everywhere and I'd take a little picture of your face and I would and put some, some sticky backing on it and I would stick it on the, the severed head of it there and I'd just leave it there dangling so that you always remembered what you did. Okay. Well, yeah. now we're both warned. We know, both know where we stand. We, uh, we I've, can... got no, I've got no reason to cut your junk off, by the way, Tom. Um, absolutely no reason. In fact, if I was holding it in my hand, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Anyway, um, so that's... <laughs> So that's uh, that's Foxy, and then the movie ends. And actually, the movie ends quite abruptly. I mean, after she's finished with Catherine, she gets in the car and says, you know, something to the effect of, "Well, look, that's 
the party's over and done with, and then it ends. It actually reminded me of old kung fu movies. Old kung fu movies, like Shaw Brothers and... and um, mainly the Shaw Brothers movies, to be honest. Old, They've got this way of... They end the movie as soon as the conflict is resolved. Yeah. So it's like, so it's not like in most Hollywood movies. It's like we, we have to have, we have to tie it up nicely, put a bow on it. In a in a kung fu movie, it pretty much is okay. The villain is dead, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna turn around and walk away, and boom, there's the end, and it's very quick. And this reminded me of that a little bit, and that once it's resolved, the film is is done. Um, it's done and finished, and and we're out of there. And we've had a good time, I think. We have had a good time, and. Hopefully took something from it as well. I think, I mean, just to sum up my feelings on it, it is a good time. It is a romp. If I wanted something just as a as something quite fun to put on, then this would be a great movie for it. But then there are moments like, there's that moment where Pam Greer or Foxy, I should say, is talking to the gang, trying to get them on side. And I don't know the exact words. I can't remember them. But she says something along the lines of, you know, I want justice for all the people who are bought and sold um, mm. so a few big shots can climb on their backs and, you know, laugh at the law and decency. And, you know, I don't want to make this overly political, but, you know, it was obviously the way black people were feeling at the time. That's an issue. But I think living in England today, it's very relevant. You know, I can see the hierarchy here. You've got the judges greasing the wheels for the sort of money men, which is the drug people in the middle, um, you know, who in turn give them benefits and so on. Um, and they're all working in cahoots to kind of keep the sort of the people who they consider of a lower class addicted. You know, it's it's a very sort of, they're almost farming people, keeping people where they want them to be, using their product, keeping them in, poverty keeping them addicted and and i kind of see that in england now you know with the way our government works with the way it works with corporations and Mm -hmm. the way that just for the common man no matter what your race is that it is getting harder and harder to to uh, get by and make ends meet because everyone's got their hand out and you know we, we live in a country where the you know the health service made by the people for the people so everyone could get free health care is being torn apart and sold off to the highest bidder by you know people who could who have no business doing it you know nobody asked for this but they're doing it and absolutely it you know we've got mps who are uh part of the company sitting on the board of directors of these companies who are who are taken up nhs business um and and it's just wrong and it's just rotten to the core and again i have got a bit overly political to this but i can see that parallel it's unfortunately seems to be uh what people do you know power corrupts and you will get this sort of hierarchy of people who will keep people in servitude keep people in addictive destructive lifestyles and i think foxy brown illustrates that beautifully without being too heavy about it like i probably just have been um and it it's unfortunate that it's still happening and it's getting worse rather than better mm. i like pam Greer's tits they are very nice aren't they mm. <laughs> uh, no, no I, can't, I can't i mean what can i add to that i mean it's a fantastic point um 
I mean, I would just quickly say I don't want to go off on a rant about it as well because I can I can do so very easily. Um, I have a I try not to get into politics too much just because I tend to go off on one. In fact, my, me and my girlfriend actually have a bit of agreement, which is that we won't talk about politics because we'll just end up debating with each other for hours, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I will say is is covering another aspect of it, which is women in slavery. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, sex slavery still exists even today. Um, it it actually exists in a much stronger form than I I ever thought possible, really. And um, I tend to read about a lot of true crime, things that have happened, women who've gone missing. I think it's a goddamn shame um, that it that it can't be broken apart somehow. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that going right back to what you were saying, the point you were making, you know, I, I want to I'm taking revenge for all the people who were bought and sold. Well, that is happening even now. It's happening to women. As we speak, mm-hmm. women are being uh, kidnapped, are being sold into slavery, uh, forced into heroin, drug addiction, so that they can't escape because they have a dependency on somebody. And that's what it reminded me of, really. I mean, in addition, of course, to the to the fight for rights for black people, which was not e- still not equal at that point, arguably still not equal even now. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you can go into exactly what you were talking about, about our own government and MPs and the way that... that at the end of the day, you know, without wish, wishing to sound cliched, it is corrupt, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, you, know, you know, there's a lot of corruption in power. Definitely, definitely. And when you've got these these huge corporations who are going to own things that we ourselves used to own as citizens, uh, you know, as as people who live here, uh, I don't know, we could be it all night with that one. <laughs> we can, maybe we just start maybe we start another podcast where we just talk about politics. Uh, <laughs> imagine that, me putting dick jokes in the middle of it. But yeah, no, I I think that this film, I think it does raise those questions, mm-hmm. um, and, it, and it raises a debate certainly. Moving on from that, let's just quickly talk for just a, just a, a minute or two about Jack Hill. Um, is the man who who directed this, of course. Now, what's your sort of experience with him and his movies? I don't I don't know a lot to be honest. Did he do the Warriors? He did not. That was Walter Hill. Ah, there you go. Um, but I know what you mean, actually. I, I've confused the two a few times. <laughs> I, um, I know he did Coffee, and I remember getting Foxy Brown and Coffee at the same time on DVD, and I actually prefer Coffee. Uh, I like them both, but at the time I preferred Coffee, and uh, it's good to know, actually, that Coffee is coming out from Arrow Video on Blu-ray this year. And um, nice. it's been a while since I've seen it, so I'm really looking forward to checking that one out again. Yeah, I'm actually going to end up picking them both up on Blu-ray, get the steel book, mm. and um, add that to my collection. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. And I have to say, the last Jack Hill film I saw, which I think was back in December, was Spider Baby, or The Maddest Story Ever Told. Very, very different kind of movie. I mean, I'm sure Jack Hill wasn't aware of the fact that he actually would end up directing two of the most acclaimed, well-known films in the black exploitation genre. Um, but uh, he was also a horror director, an exploitation director, and uh, Spider Baby also has Sid Haig in it. Um, it's a it's a, a wacky, strange film. Um, it has Lon Chaney Jr. in it, mm-hmm. um, who is fantastic in it. Actually, who carries the movie, in my opinion. Uh, really, it, it's hard movie to describe because I don't want to sit and review it. But it, it is. I actually would recommend it. I know it's one of those films. It seems to have a mix. You know, mixed reviews on it. Some people like it, and some people can't quite get into it. But it's a weird movie from the '60s, black and white. Well worth your time. Have you seen that one, Tom? You know, considering its status, I'm ashamed to say I haven't actually seen it. But I'll probably pick up that Blu-ray at some point. 
You fool. Yeah, you didn't know you should see it. You should see it honestly. I mean, I think it's quite cheap actually the Blu-ray. Worth worth a go because it's an it's an odd little thing. I I almost think of it as a very 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 dysfunctional um Adam's family. <laughs> um but you know, but but strange and very adult at the same time. So yeah, that's that's Jack Hill. Um also directed a couple of prison movies of course, The Big Dollhouse, The Big Bird Cage. Um let me read you this trivia and then we'll be done with this one and we'll move on to uh Another classic. Um, the part of Foxy was written by Jack Hill for Pam Greer, um, as was the part of Catherine, the villain, played by Catherine Loder. Uh, Hill had worked with both actresses in the past and had experience with them. Uh, Pam Greer had appeared in Hill's previous films The Big Doll House from 1971, The Big Bird Cage from 1972, and Coffee from 1973. Uh, Catherine Loder had been in The Big Doll House alongside Greer. Sadly, Catherine Loder had a very short acting career. Foxy Brown was, in fact, her final film. She appeared in an episode of a TV show called The Far Out Space Nuts in 1975 and then tragically passed away due to diabetes in 1978. So that's a shame. It's a very short career. Uh, This film and Coffee, released a year earlier, also directed by Jack Hill, of course, are considered enormously influential and both films contributed towards improving the perception of movies led by females. Previous exploitation films, as we discussed, were mostly cast with male actors, so Pam Greer is considered a major icon and a force for changing that trend. And finally, Antonio Fargas, who we've mentioned, is the cat plays the character of Link, Foxy's brother, in this film would come to much greater notice as Huggy Bear in the TV series Starchki and Hutch. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and very much a, an actor that I think you will recognise. If you've seen any, you know, any sort of uh, 70s, 80s TV, I think you would probably notice that you, you'd have seen uh, Antonio Fargas at some point. Mm. Um, so that is Foxy Brown. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray from Arrow Video in the UK, and I will be picking up the Blu-ray steelbook like a geeky geek uh, very, very shortly. And I'm sure... Sh- I- I didn't have much of a search, but I'm sure it's widely available in America. It's, it's very much an acclaimed movie, so you'll be able to find it wherever you look. Yeah, I think before we move on from that, just a brief mention should probably go to Jackie Brown, which I think is a spiritual sequel to... It could be a spiritual sequel to this or Coffee. You know, she settles down and has a normal life from here on in. She's had all this excitement, but then... Jackie Brown happens. So, uh, you know, obviously not in name, but you could very much play it that way. And I think that's what Tarantino intended. So, it's... Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up, actually, because I had completely forgotten to write it down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we know Quentin Tarantino, he, he'd eat these movies for breakfast. Yeah. And um, he absolutely, you know, loved Pam Greer. Um, it's funny enough, while I was doing research on this movie, I actually discovered that, that Foxy Brown was supposed to be a sequel to Coffee. And ah. uh, yeah, and it was originally, I can't remember what the, they were originally going to call it, but, um, and the studio at the last minute basically said, well, no, we don't want a sequel. So they ended up sort of re, I guess, reworking the script to, to make it an original character. So, it, and it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Cause it would have been quite nice to have, I mean, I've not seen coffee. I will pick it up when it comes out this year. Um, but it, it, it would have been nice to sort of tie the two together, wouldn't it? Cause they seem quite similar to me. It is a shame. It would it would have been nice actually, but I'd see it in the same way as I see, you know, Unforgiven as a kind of spiritual sequel to the Man with No Name trilogy. You know, it's it's very much sort of finishing that story without. Uh, or if we want to, if we want to even go a horror one uh, in Hatchet Three, 
the character played by Caroline Williams is very much a continuation of Stretch from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So I like it when I like it when movies do that kind of thing. Mm, I didn't know that about Hatchet 3. So that's uh, interesting. I've only seen the first Hatchet and I didn't like it. So I'm... Well, two and three are better. Two and three are better. Two especially, but I didn't like one either. But, you know, you might warm to them. Mm, well, maybe I'll give it a go then. I've heard the second one is it was a lot better than the first. Um, yes, so that was Foxy Brown, ladies and gentlemen. That's our first film. So, Chris, I know you're a bit of a martial arts enthusiast, so this is going to be right down your alley. <laughs> <laughs> right right down my alley, Tom. Um <laughs> Yes, I mean, let me let me tell you about this film first, and then I'll I'll go into my martial arts. But you'll have to give me a couple of minutes on this one, Tom. I promise it'll all make sense when I get to the point. Uh, let me tell you about Firecracker, also known as Naked Fist. Um, I can't seem to find it under the title Naked Fist anywhere. It seems to be Firecracker predominantly. Mm. Um, quite an obscure movie, isn't it, really? Um, but look, let me tell you about it. Let me read you the quote-unquote plot. So it's Firecracker, released in 1981, directed by Sirio H. Santiago, also written by him and Ken Hetkaff and Alan Holzman. So foxy young martial artist Suzanne Carter, played by Gillian Kesner, travels to the Philippines to search for her missing sister Bonnie, unaware that there's a gang arranging deadly fights contested and won chiefly by starfighter Chuck, played by Darby Hinton. Early on in her investigation, she meets bar owner Pete, played by Peter Cooper, and Ray, played by Ray Malonzo, both of whom are sympathetic to Suzanne's desire to find her sister. While observing a fight at a local club, she meets a curious Chuck, who has been sent by his boss Eric to root out Suzanne's reason for being in the country. It's here that she discovers just how deadly the fights can be. Developing a relationship with Chuck quickly, she continues to investigate the seedy goings-on as Eric's gang continues to undertake drug deals. Faced with opponents coming from even the most obscure of places, Suzanne has to fight as she struggles to find answers. However, soon enough answers come thanks to undercover police officers who are also investigating the gang. As Suzanne and Chuck's relationship begins to intensify, culminating in a steamy love scene complete with knife play, mm. uh, revelations come to light that, that will change Suzanne's mission forever and bring her one step closer to solving her sister's disappearance, all staged in a final bloody battle to the death. Here's a clip. Welcome to our little question and answer session. Would you mind telling me what this is all about? I am here to ask the questions. You are here to provide the answers. Not until I know what's going on. It seems you don't quite understand the seriousness of this little meeting. That's right. I haven't the foggiest idea. Perhaps you need a little convincing. This is my little concoction of truth serum. You answer the question correctly. The snake stays locked up. You tell a lie, it is released. I warn you, the Philippine cobra is the deadliest of its kind. Tell me, where did you go yesterday morning? I went for a ride. You know, touring the countryside. Sightseeing? Is that all? That's all. You were at the ambush, weren't you? 
What ambush? What is your purpose here in Olongapo? Okay. I'm a martial arts instructor by profession. I'm here to study the Arnis technique. In the meantime, I'm looking around for a way to support myself. What is your real purpose here in Olongapo? I just told you. You lie! So, Tom, Firecracker. What did you think of this one, my, my old buddy, my old pal? I think it's probably the finest martial arts film ever made. No, I'm only messing. It's... Uh, <laughs> that's why I said it. Um, Bastard. It's a funny one, isn't it, really? It's cheesy. It's poorly written, poorly acted. I didn't know what the point of anything in the plot was most of the way through. I kind of, by the end, you know, but there's no clue throughout, so it's just confusing. Suzanne, you know, good-looking girl, um, holds her own with the guys for a lot of the movie, so there's that. It doesn't veer far enough into the camp silliness to be a camp fun classic in that way because it, a lot of the time it, it's quite dull, so, but other times it gets close to being that, that campy, silly film that would make you uh, a great sort of let's get pissed and watch it movie. Um, so it doesn't quite get there, but it does sometimes, uh, and I have a few good memories of it in that respect, so it, it, maybe it would get there for me. Um, but I, I didn't hate it. I kind of had a bit of fun with it. I can't really say much more than that. We'll we'll get into stuff, but I'll hand over for you, to you because I feel like my earphones are going to melt shortly. Mm, mm, mm. Interesting, interesting, interesting opinion all round. Uh, Tom, you mentioned uh, just a little, a few minutes ago, actually, mm. that uh, I'm a bit of a martial arts enthusiast. Yeah. Uh, not many people who listen to this will actually know. In fact, probably yourself and and the girlfriend, that uh, there are two genres of film that I love the most. One is horror, the other is actually martial arts. Uh, martial arts movies, Kung Fu, Shaw Brothers, Golden Harvest, um, Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, Yan Biao, um, any kind of old school horror movie you can think of, uh, or horror movie, Kung Fu movie you can think of, um, modern stuff, The Raid, The Raid 2, everything. I've probably seen... It's probably numbers hundreds at this point, mm -hmm. the martial arts movies. They were always the two genres that I ded really dedicated my life to. Um, I like a lot of it. Of course, a lot of other different kinds of movies, but those are always the two. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't like calling myself an expert because it implies that, you know, oh, yes, I know much more than you and I never want to be like that. But I'm certainly a, 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 a huge kung fu fanboy. Mm. Um, so with that said, let, let me... Uh, <laughs> let me let me talk about something there is a there's a series of movies uh japanese movies that were released in the 70s uh called lone wolf and cub yeah and um they started in 1972 they were based on a manga uh started in 1972 i think they finished in 74 so there's only two years they released six movies in that collection they follow the adventures of ogami itu who is this ronin um, who has basically been disgraced and has to it is after um, a cool, I don't want to get into the plot too much because there's a lot of plot in there but he's basically um, he's traveling the road to hell with his son Daigoro right uh, 
the first two films in that series were re-edited um, in America, and they were made into a film called Shogun Assassin. Mm. Um, Shogun Assassin, you could you could argue, is the more popular film because what it is, it's an American re-edit. So they dubbed over the actors. They put they took about twelve maybe about 15 minutes of footage from the first Lone Wolf and Cub movie. They took all of the second movie. They slotted them together. They simplified the plot. They took out a lot of the political stuff that's in, in, in those first two movies, and they focused more on the violence. Um, and it's it's Shogun Assassin is a very, very entertaining movie. In fact, it's one we're going to be covering at some point this year, I think, mm-hmm. uh, because it is on the Section 3 list. The music in Shogun Assassin is one of my favourite soundtracks. It is a lovely, cheesy, synthy soundtrack. So now we come to Firecracker. Now, <laughs> now, to, to, now, to, now, to begin with, there's a reason why I told you all of that stuff. Uh, to begin with, this, this, film, this film lost points with me for two reasons. The first reason is that from the moment the movie opened up, from the opening scene, immediately I thought, why does that music sound so familiar? The reason it sounds so familiar is because they nicked the entire soundtrack from Shogun Assassin and spliced it into this movie. So all the music, almost all of the music you hear in this in in Firecracker was stolen, and I'm not talking about an, an homage. Um, I'm talking about directly stolen from Shogun Assassin and placed into this movie where it doesn't belong. So they've taken elements of it, they've taken little bits that they like, and put them in places that are completely inappropriate. Um, so immediately. I'm thinking, okay, this isn't working for me because, number one, I, I know this music so well that it doesn't fit for me because I expect it to be in certain scenes. It's music that belongs in another movie. It doesn't belong here. If you're going to make a movie, write your own goddamn music, mm. right, first and foremost. It ain't diff- difficult to get a Casio keyboard and bang something out. I mean, you can smash it against somebody's face and have a soundtrack. So... So that's where I begin with that. So for the, from the first the first reason it lost points with me it was because they stole the soundtrack from Shogun Assassin. Now, some of the feedback that we're going to read or, or play for you later on, a couple of people, they, they they speak quite negatively about the soundtrack. Yeah, Jim Moon, who you're going to hear from later on, he refers to it as like a Casio soundtrack and forgettable and all the rest of it. And, you know, look, you're very much entitled to that opinion. What I'll say is this. That soundtrack is so much more badass when it's played against a backdrop of a, a brutal samurai cutting down enemies in one swipe of his sword while walking with a with a cart, a deadly cart that has blades on the side of it, um, than it is with somebody driving a van down the road. <laughs> and there's another scene in here. I'm not. I'm going to stop in a minute. Don't worry. Um, there's another scene in here, the scene where the character of Chuck is trying to seduce Gillian, and they play the music... They take a piece of music from Shogun Assassin where Daigoro, the little child, Igami Ito's child, is playing, being playful, playing around in the dirt, running around, and they use it in a seduction scene. It is a, it is a, it was a huge disconnect for me because it doesn't belong in this movie. Mm. So when you hear the opening scene, you know, dun 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 dun, that's all from Shogun Assassin. It was stolen from it directly. Um, so yeah. First reason it lost points with me was because of that. The second reason it lost points with me is because it's rubbish. <laughs> now, I will say, is it is entertaining rubbish mm. to some degree. Um, I, you know, I don't hate the movie by any means. Now, I realise that I'm, I'm oversensitive to this because I, like, I'm a big martial arts fan. So I realise that, that 
And look, I've seen a lot of bad martial arts movies as well. Don't get me wrong. But if you're going to be bad, you do have to be entertaining. And it, and it fulfills that to some degree, but then it doesn't fulfill it in other ways. So uh, let's get, let's get down to, to the plot of this. This one, I feel, the actual plot of it, I don't think we can we can say that much about it. Because the, the plot is threadbare, isn't it? It is. It's, um, I think, I mean, spoiler alert, we always spoil stuff. Hopefully you know that by now. The gloves are always off. Um it's basically a, a sort of double cross where the, the drugs kingpin is trying to get the kind of middleman between him and the buyers out of the way so he can deal directly with, um, sorry, the suppliers, not the buyers, um, get the middleman out the way so he can get the drugs cheaper and deal directly with them, make more money. So that's the whole thing. But you only find that out at the end. The sort of machinations of it throughout um, make no sense unless you know that but it's not presented because chuck works for him the guy with the impressive mustache chuck works for him and at certain points he's trying to kill uh, or you know he's stealing the stuff and you don't know why he's stealing the stuff because he uh he works for the kingpin guy so it doesn't make any sense until the end but it's not presented in such a way as as to be like hmm intriguing you know what's going on here it's it's more like yeah. What's going on here? You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very messy, isn't it? Mm. It's it's narratively. And look, I I understand some people they they may be critical of of my opinion and say, well, look, I mean, a lot of kung fu movies they don't have a particularly great plot. I mean, if you're talking about you know um, the standard generic kung fu movie plot, it usually involves revenge, which is you know somebody's master, somebody's brother, somebody's mother, somebody's lover has died. Mm. Um, or in many of the old kung fu movies, many of the old Chinese kung fu movies, it very often was there's a Chinese school and a Japanese school, and the Chinese school hates the Japanese because the Japanese people are evil. There was even a bit of racism there. Um, so you you know, but you do expect something yeah. that is is somewhat solid. And in here, things happen. The fights in the movie, for example, they happen out of nothing. For example, we've got that early scene where you've got Suzanne Carter, played by Gillian Kesner, a very attractive blonde woman, we must say. And I have to say, just for, for as a, a positive compliment, I think she holds her own quite well. Mm. Um, I don't think the choreography in the movie is very good. You know, she, she's decent. I don't think she can act her way out of a paper bag. But she, but in terms of the presence, you know, mm. it's not... You know, you can understand. Um, but she goes to this bar to try and find out what's happened to her sister. And she, she meets this guy there. Uh, what's his name? Pete. He's the bar owner. Yeah. Who really doesn't come into it that much at all. You sort of think, okay, he's he can fight. He's going to be a major character. Really, really don't do anything with him. She goes into her sister's old room because she's wondering what her sister has disappeared. She's been taken at the beginning of the movie by a couple of guys and you're wondering what's happened and this is why you really have to fight to sort of get this information because it's not given to you freely um, this is why Suzanne's turned up in the Philippines because she wants to find her sister Bonnie so anyway she goes into this back room with, with Ray who's this young this young guy so she goes there when she comes out of the room back into the bar again there's this massive fight going on with no lead up to it no explanation as to why it's happening all we know is there are a bunch of people fighting and then she gets in the midst of it and it's and it, I have to admit, I laughed out loud during it because it just, it's the most nonsensical thing I've seen in, in a long time where it's just, she walks into a room, the bar is peaceful, people are sitting at the tables, they're enjoying a drink. She walks back out of the room and into the bar again, everybody's fighting each other. Yeah. Why? Why? 
why <laughs> you know it, it doesn't but it but it's a fun thing mm. and some of the fighting in it is fun so we got that scene basically what what this whole thing is is we we we're going to get into a situation where we know Chuck is this deadly fighter. He's going to end up meeting Suzanne and they form a relationship with each other. There, oh boy. There are a lot of moments in here where you wonder, I mean, you know, I've already talked about the music. I mean, quite frankly, the scene where Chuck is, is trying to seduce her um, and they're playing the music. Now, I know this is just me who's, who's reading it, but they're playing the music with Ogomi Ito's son playing. Mm. Um peacefully outside running around kicking rocks and everything and instead they're playing it over this <sighs> over this seduction scene where you know chuck's in there oh i can be very persuasive i bet you bloody can you porno moustache no acting motherfucker <laughs> but beyond that there are some scenes <laughs> in here it's a bad plot it's badly acted um, it's not very well choreographed. You can tell they didn't have a, 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 a good choreographer on this. All the music stolen from another movie. But there are a couple of bits in here that are just so strange that you can't help but be entertained by them. One of them is, uh, at some point, for no apparent reason, Suzanne is chased by two guys who are drunk. Um, you, I'm sure you remember this scene well. Mm -hmm. Now, Gillian Kessner is a beautiful-looking woman. She's got a nice body. For some reason, by the end of this fight, she's almost completely naked. She's topless. Um, she keeps she gets her dress caught on 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 a peg or something, and it rips off part of her dress. And then there's another guy who pulls off most of her dress. And basically, the whole thing it's very exploitative. And the whole thing is designed just to get Gillian Kesner naked, um, which almost happens towards the end of it. All of a sudden, these guys who were just hanging around outside drinking, they suddenly become murderers and potential rapists yeah I've, I've got this in my notes as well uh, because let's face it up until now she's held her own in every fight she's had i think maybe chuck had beat her at, at this point in in one of their sort of sparring matches i can't remember but everyone else she kicked her ass quite you know comfortably so she's walking along in her dress and heels and these two guys are like hey baby you know and for some reason she seems to see these guys. She's been to martial arts schools and beat people up. She's beat people up on stage in a martial arts bar. This very accomplished martial artist all of a sudden gets scared of these two guys who yeah. who just seem to be a couple of street hoods, you know? Um, and it, it's one of those things where you, it's purely just engineered to get her naked. You know, yeah. like you say, she runs through, a dress rips on the uh, on the fence, you know, she goes to the security guard who tries to help her, who ends up getting murdered. <laughs> uh, you know, out of nowhere. And then, like you say, the the bit that actually impressed me was, you know, her clothes are getting ripped off all the all throughout. And then when he, when he cuts her bra in the middle, she she. I'm actually quite impressed by the way she does it. She just thinks, ah, oh, fuck it, and just takes her bra off, you know, as if she was yeah. taking her jacket off to have a fight and then starts kicking her ass. So it actually absolutely makes no sense. But it's but it is entertaining. Definitely. I mean, that much you can say, you know. And I'm a, a, a you know, a red-blooded straight man, and it wasn't dis disappointing to mine eye, shall we say? But um, but <laughs> nevertheless, it doesn't make it. All of a sudden, these guys become like cop killers. Um, it just it. it you know, just because they they want to have a go at it, you know, it, it just is. It's unbelievable. Now, there's another scene, Tom, 
I think you know what I'm going to talk about here. I think I do. There's another thing. This is probably the most notable scene in the movie, which is a bit odd considering it's a martial arts movie where you're supposed to be focusing on the fighting. There's a scene where Chuck... <laughs> oh, dear. Tom, you set this up because I, I, I may crack up laughing. I take it we're talking about when he finally seduces Suzanne into bed. <laughs> and... With these being two martial artists, I guess, maybe this is what martial artists do. I don't know. I took Kung Fu for a couple of years, but I never actually did this. <laughs> She's lying on the bed, and Chuck gets his knives out and starts <laughs> cutting up her trouser legs, each one. And it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not like he smoothly cuts them up and they're off. It's, it looks quite difficult sometimes, you know, he's got to hack away it a does. bit. <laughs> so it's sort of ruining the, the flow. Um, and he, he goes at her clothing with his knife until she's naked and she punches him. All, <laughs> <laughs> all you know, as part of the seduction and he gets back onto the bed. And at some point she says... I can feel the blood pulse inside your head. Now, I don't know about you, Chris, but when I'm making love to a beautiful lady, there's no better compliment than when she says, I can feel the blood pulse in your head. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I bet your prick bloody sprang up like a mountain cucumber during that scene, didn't it? It did, it did. And then I went to the kitchen to see, get a couple of butter knives out. But, the, I mean, this is what I was talking about, the... <laughs> The um at times because it's played dead straight. It's not they're not trying to be campy. They're they're no. trying to be dead straight, dead cool. The ridiculousness is unintentional. And if there was more of that throughout, <laughs> I think we probably would have had a bit of a camp classic here. I think so. I mean I think look, if you can't if you can't choreograph your fights well and the acting's rubbish and the movie's not that long either. No. And it, it still, I still was quite bored by it, actually. Um, but, but this, you know, if you can't, you've got to be entertaining at least. And this, that scene and the one we talked about before, I mean, just a couple of little bits here and there. You know, that if it had been more like that, I think I would feel better about it. Because, I, you know, I love a bad movie as much as, as the next person, but I like it to be a good bad movie, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Sorry, just, just going back to that sex scene as well. It just came into my mind. As she's lying on the bed and he thinks, I'm in here, I'm in here. He goes over and he turns the lamp off and then turns the big light on. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you do that? I guess he must just like to see. I don't know, but... Well don't, well, don't forget the, you know, because he, he begins at her feet and he's rubbing her feet. Mm. It's, it's almost like something out of a fetish porno or something, you know. I mean, he's, he starts rubbing her feet and then he, he cuts, he uses his pen, they're, they're pen knives, basically. That's what they are. He uses his pen knives to cut her trouser legs. He goes right up to her, her bottom and he starts rubbing her, her bottom Um and then, you know, she's, and then he pulls her, you know, knickers down. I don't want to get into explicit. Why am I getting into explicit details over this bullshit? <laughs> but it, 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 it is hilarious. It's absolutely, and they don't even really have sex. She just sort of lies on top of him and then whispers that nonsense to him about the blood pulsing through his head. You know which head he's talking about. I'm not talking about the one up above. She's talking about the one down below. And, um, and then it's over. And it is, it's a brilliant moment. If you watch this film for anything, 
don't watch it for the martial arts. Watch it for that. Go on YouTube and just look for it. And if you can find it, find Firecracker and just look for the scene where Chuck and, and um, Suzanne, they make it a love because it is quite ridiculous. Uh, beyond that, I mean, I didn't mind the ending battle of it too much. Basically what happens is, I mean, look, let's cut to the chase. It turns out that there's an undercover police operation going on. They're trying to look for Bonnie as well. It, it transpires anyway that, that Bonnie is actually dead. Her body was found in a river and the person who killed her was Chuck. He's a shifty fellow, so I'm not that surprised. Uh, Suzanne finds out. She goes absolutely berserk and she wants to compete in the final battle to the death in the ring and she chooses Chuck who is quite taken aback by it and initially they sort of begin fighting each other and doesn't want to hurt her and he's saying you know well, look can't we resolve this in a different way and she basically wants to kill him because she knows that he, he killed her sister mm. um, while this is happening there's a character named Ray in this who's not a bad fighter and is you know I mean he's doing his best Bruce Lee impression Definitely. Uh, without making any noises He's he's basically doing the blue. He even does the thing of you know he knees somebody in the stomach and then pushes them down onto the ground like Bruce Lee used to do. Um, for some reason, he's barely in the movie at all. He maybe has about seven or eight minutes of proper screen time. He comes in and has actually has a decent sort of series of fights, and you you sort of wonder why he wasn't in it more. I mean, what a wasted character. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I didn't really, I can't even remember. What what his role in the whole thing was now to be honest but that's more down to the film than him but yeah he comes in anyway they <laughs> they end up having a fight she, uh, suzanne kicks chuck in the back and he falls onto the ground in pain and she jumps up in the air and plows two sticks into his eyes rendering him dead and that's pretty much the end of the movie pretty much the end of this bullshit excuse for a martial <laughs> arts movie with a few entertaining bits now now let me say you know i know i've rambled on about i've probably taken this review over a bit more than i wanted to and i'm sorry for that tom um i'm very passionate about martial arts movies i do think there's stuff in here that's worth that's worth seeing just because there's, there's ridiculousness we discussed mm. the love scenes but i mean really when you when you get right down to it you know, if this is the film, if you're somebody who maybe doesn't watch many martial arts movies, if this is the film that you feel is going to represent in any way the quality of a great kung fu movie, no, 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 no. You have to, you know, it, it, you can watch it for the entertainment. There's so many great entertaining kung fu movies. Fist of Fury, The Big Boss, Drunken Master, Police Story, uh, My Young Auntie, The Magnificent Butcher. I mean, I could go, The Prodigal Son. I could go on and on and on and on and on. If you kind of watch a martial arts movie and you want to actually get into it to some degree, watch something good, folks. And don't let this represent good martial arts cinema. Don't let this represent what Shaw Brothers represents or what Golden Harvest represented in the 80s. Don't let this do that because it, it it's not worth it. It's a bad martial arts movie. It's passively entertaining in, in a bunch of places. It, it's it's entertaining rubbish, but it is rubbish. I I walked away from it quite bored, entertained by a couple of bits, laughed my ass off at a few bits. But ultimately, I came away from it as a martial arts fan, feeling very very disappointed that there's such a shoddy piece of work was put out there. I think Gillian Kesner is is not. You know, not bad. Like I said, no acting ability whatsoever, but looks nice. 
de- decent enough fight. If the choreography was better, maybe she would have been even more effective in, in the role. And ultimately, you know, some people disagree with me about this and feel that I'm taking it too seriously. I was offended that they took music from what I feel is a, is a much better movie and slapped it into this. As far as I'm aware, because Roger Corman had a, a production partnership with uh, Santiago, the guy who, who directed this movie, it was... I mean, this is just what I've read on the internet, so, I, you know, I can't be 100% sure that this is true. Uh, it seems to me like he was the one who who liked the soundtrack in a Shogun Assassin, which came out a year before this, enough to be able to, uh, to to use it in this, to basically steal it and use it in this. So I watched the whole movie with that disconnect there, which unfortunately never went away from me. It was like, well, that's you took that from there, and that belongs in a different scene, in a completely different context. And I'll say this, you know, for, for Jim Moon and Seth McKevlin, not to spoil their feedback too much, they both were, were you're saying quite negative things about the soundtrack. I'll say this. Watch Shogun Assassin, you can either watch it now or watch it when we get to it on the show, which we will do at some point down the line. And watch and listen to the music in its proper context, in the scenes that it was written for. And if you still don't like it, then then that's absolutely fine. It just means that the soundtrack wasn't for you. Of course, it's 80s and it's cheesy and it's synth and all the rest of it. But it's like I said before, I don't like repeating myself, but it's much more badass to listen to that opening theme when there's a, a, a kick-ass samurai who can tear people down with his sword, then it is stuck in this lame-ass bloody excuse for a martial arts movies, uh, movie. Um, it, it's one of those things, I wouldn't buy it. Um, you have it though, Tom, so good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> it is, um, I wouldn't buy it. I would look up the stuff that made me laugh on YouTube, definitely. It was a, a severe disappointment to me. Not one that I didn't mine some gold from, because there is a little bit of gold in there sprinkled in. But it, it, it ultimately didn't work for me. And as a martial arts fan, this is the kind of movie... It ultimately, it does a disservice to the great martial Because somebody will watch this and think, well, martial arts is a bit pants, isn't it? And yeah, But it really isn't. There's a lot of great, great movies in that genre that deserve to be seen. And there's so many different kinds of movies and variety. And there's, there's quality when it's done by people who actually care. And this guy, Sirio H. Santiago, he didn't care. He just wanted to make money. And I imagine Roger Corman wanted to do the same. And I have respect for Roger Corman, but he's a guy who likes to make money. That's his that's his thing. He's a producer. Um, yeah, it, 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 it wasn't for me, buddy boy. Oh, oh, you're done. Okay. Sorry, I just went down the, uh, to Asda to get some uh, shopping. Right. So right. I did the same thing when you were talking about politics. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't really say. I, I think... I'm less offended by it than you, uh, because obviously I don't know Shogun Assassin, and I unfortunately I'll, I'll have to sort of side with Jim and Seth that that music out of context. I thought it was off a computer game or something, um, mm-hmm. because they're, they're not using it. To, so I I'm looking forward to when we do Shogun Assassin, so I can see it how it's meant to be, because I I do like sort of 80s synthy soundtracks. We've spoke about this before, so we will. Uh, we will see. But yeah, like you said, for a 70-odd minute film to be boring is, is quite quite a feat, you know. Unfortunately, it is what it is. It had some of those campy fun moments that sort of raised it at times, and you just kind of think, well, I wish it was all like that. Then then it would have been a fun little beer movie. Um, but as it is, it falls short. But it is what it is. You know, I'm, I wonder whether we've got any female listeners out there. I would have liked to have heard their take on it because in a lot of ways, you know, she's a strong female character. She holds her own. She beats up the guys. 
And then on the other hand, you know, okay, they come to a point, let's get a top off, you know? And yeah. it's, I, I just wondered, it is very exploitative. I mean, I, it comes, it's par for the course for me in a, in a sort of cheesy grindhouse flick. Um, but I just wonder if there's any female listeners out there and what they thought of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, write in, you know, if you mm-hmm. if you have a strong opinion about it, I'd love to hear it. Let me read you some trivia about this bullshit. Uh, the movie was shot in the Philippines, where several of the actors here had established good careers. Uh, the documentary Machete Maidens Unleashed from 2010 explores the film industry in the Philippines and this film as well. I have to give credit to Seth McKevlin, who, of course, is a... Uh, a good friend who writes in uh, to us every time, uh, almost every time. Um, he let me know about that movie on Twitter, and I do want to see that, actually. I'm quite interested, and I love a good horror documentary, exploitation documentary. I think you do too, Tom. Definitely. Uh, the film is widely considered to be a remake of director Sirio H. Santiago's early exploitation film, TNT Jackson. Have you seen that one? That's very... Uh, it's interesting you say that, because it comes on the Lethal Ladies collection, uh, Firecracker, with... It's a, it's a triple bill, uh, a film called Too Hot to Handle, and just to just so people know, on that on the cover of that you've got a very attractive blonde lady in black knickers and bra holding a machine gun. So this is the kind of stuff we're watching. Yeah. And the other film is TNT Jackson. So I I don't know where that comes before Foxy Brown or after Foxy Brown, but it's uh, it looks very much like uh, the same sort of. Uh, thing but hold on i'm looking on the back they call me tnt martial arts expert diana jackson so i guess a, a... it was before i believe really it was before even coffee yeah okay i well, think it i think it was early very early 70s yeah i'll look forward to checking that one out then so yeah okay uh, santiago had an extremely prolific career as a director although his work was typically deemed trashy and exploitative no <laughs> uh, nevertheless he had a production partnership with roger corman I mentioned before, he helps him distribute his movies in the US. He has 82 directing credits on his IMDb page, so he was definitely prolific. Um, he passed away in 2008 at the age of 72. Um, two more quick bits here for you. Uh, Gillian Kesner was indeed a real-life martial artist, having been a karate champion. Um, she continued to have an acting career throughout the 80s and some of the 90s, and her and cinematographer husband Gary Graver were big fans of Orson Welles. Um, apparently he'd worked on several movies with him. They attempted to finish uh, Welles's film The Other Side of the Wind, but presumably never did. Uh, Kesner sadly passed away in 2008 at the age of 58, so she was only a babe, really. Uh, when she went um, and finally Darby Hinton who plays our favourite villain Chuck mm. continued to have a decent acting career actually surprisingly so he's the kind of guy you would expect to have been in this and maybe like two other things and then disappeared off the face of the earth but no um, he's appeared in a number of low budget movies and TV shows uh, I attempted to contact his porn star moustache for an interview but it was nowhere to be found Tom we do like a moustache on the Strange and Deadly show don't we we are fans of it aren't we mm. um Firecracker can be found on DVD in the UK via a Region 1 American import release called The Lethal Ladies Collection, which I guess Tom has there. Um, Don't be like Tom. Don't buy it. So that was our review of Firecracker. That was our second and final film of the show. Um, I don't think I talked about that one enough, Tom. I think I... uh... Was a little bit quiet on that one. Yeah, I'm sorry. I sort of uh, rambled a bit on that. I do apologise. No problem at all. I'm not offended in the slightest. Now we are going to move on to some feedback, which we always do uh, at this point in the show. Tom, do you want to uh, introduce us to that? Yes, absolutely. And uh, 
we've uh, done quite well again this time round. So, should we do the emails first? I think emails first is good and lead up yes. to the the uh, thingies. Maybe we should get a jingle for feedback. What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, what would it be? I wonder. Um... Hmm, I don't know. Maybe Seth can whip us something up on his uh, on a synth or something, or maybe Danny. I don't know. Anyone out there who wants to send us a little feedback jingle, we'll use them all. Yeah. We'll use them all. Okay. So speaking of Seth McEvelyn, our, our friend, uh, he sent us another one this week. You're going to read this one, Chris? Yes, I will do. I had a, a little email chat with him. He's a nice chap. Um, yeah, so latest email from Seth McKevlin. He says, hey, guys, I thought I'd already seen Foxy Brown, but it turns out I'd seen Coffee. I don't have any specific comment on this film, but Pam Grier never disappoints, and she is as sexy and badass as ever in this one. I do want to say that Jack Hill is a good director. A lot of exploitation is crap, but he's good, and he does great commentaries on his DVDs too. That's true, I can attest to that. Uh, my personal favourites of his are The Big Bird Cage and Switchblade Sisters. Vic Diaz, who plays Grip in Firecracker, Pam Grier and Sid Hager, all in The Big Bird Cage, which, like Firecracker, was one of many 1960s and 70s American-made movies filmed in the Philippines. I first learned about Firecracker and the phenomenon of such movies in the documentary uh, Machete Maidens Unleashed. I highly recommended that doc to anyone into exploitation films. Firecracker's topless fighting scene is probably the only thing of note or that anyone remembers from this one. I think you're wrong. And I must say that it's hot. Julian Kesner is beautiful and deadly here and really gave it her all. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough to save this movie. The final showdown between Gillian and John Holmes, sorry, I mean Darby Hinton, who played Chuck, was also really cool. He's into a bit of porn, isn't he, Seth? <laughs> He's given himself away a few times, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, sitting there rubbing one off watching this. You knew he was a bad guy, but he never made you hate him. Either that means he's a good actor or a bad actor. Oh, I think you know what the I think you know the real answer, Seth. Uh, I don't think you should be questioning that. Um, the movie also featured a lot of sloppy and quirky synth sounds that reminded me of what every amateur new wave band probably sounded like in the eighties. No. It's a good soundtrack. Just watch it on in Shogun Assassin where it belongs. And guys, don't tell me that the bedroom scene didn't turn you on. Who doesn't enjoy some knife play every once in a while? And he's put a little tongue there. That means sarcasm. Say strange and deadly, Seth. Great stuff. Thank you, Seth. Thank you very much, Seth. And yes, I, I agree with most of that, apart from the amateur new wave band thing. Uh, but I've already spoken about this soundtrack a little bit too much. But, uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, and it's, it's nice, actually, you're watching along with us, which is fantastic. We've noticed that trend. Most of the people who write into us, you're going to notice if, you, if you're listening to the show for a while and you haven't written in that we seem to get a lot of the same people. And that's because we built up a little, you know, sort of cult fan base of people, I think, um, who love to write in and watch along with us. So that's great. So we will stray, stay strange and deadly, Seth. And um, thank you very much. And we're glad you enjoyed Foxy Brown. We're sorry that you had to suffer through Firecracker. But um, there's more to come. There's more horrible stuff to come. Uh, now we've got another email here. We do. Yes, from an old friend of yours, Thomas. Um, would you like to read this email from Brandy Jacola? I certainly would. Greetings, gentlemen. It is I, Brandy, finally jumping on the feedback bandwagon. Chris has no idea who I am, so Tom, can you explain it to him? Well, I'll explain it to Chris and the general audience, but I think, Chris, you'll remember Brandy, won't you? Yes, I do. I actually replied to this email and just said, no, I do, because... Uh, her and her husband, Dave, um, they used to record audio feedback for your show, uh, The Gentleman's Growing House, with, uh, that you did with Matt. Mm -hmm. 
So I remember hearing them from there, and I also heard one or two things that they did on their on their own on their own podcast, um, the Inside Outcast. And so, no, I, I do actually know who she is, but do explain it for um for the people at home. Certainly, she does. Like Chris said, a show called The Inside Outcast, which you can find at geekplanetonline.com or go to iTunes and do it. Um, I can't really categorize it. They, It's generally geeky um, because they, like us, are geeks, you know, like uh, the horror movies and the sci-fi movies and computer games and so on. Um, so they discuss all those things, but they also discuss other stuff. They are both goths. They like gothic music and that's a big part of it as well so it's a great fun podcast to listen to and i've enjoyed it over the years and there's got tons of episodes now but like you say i've uh, i've been in touch with brandy and dave for years now they fed back to the gentleman's grindhouse very often so it's uh, it's good to get you on this one brandy and she has the most gorgeous voice too I apologize that this is an email rather than an mp3 but i've rather been struck down by the plague all right, it's not really the plague, but if this cold were a monster, it would be Gajira. Is that how you say it, Gajira? Godzilla? Mm-hmm. Godzilla! Okay. Therefore, my voice has the sound of someone whose body has been trying to hack up a lung for 12 days, and nobody wants to listen to that. Now on to business. I was delighted when I heard you would be doing the thing. Doing the thing. It is positively one of my favorite <laughs> movies of all time, horror or otherwise. I was nine years old when the film was released, so I didn't have the option of seeing it in the theatre, as my religious parents were not about to take a child to an R-rated movie. In fact, I didn't get to see the film until after I was married to my husband Dave, who was a guest and I'd never viewed this, viewed this masterpiece. This was, of course, many years before the Blu-ray release, but we'll get to that. I often react vocally to a movie while in the comfort of my own home, and boy did the thing get some reaction. I can't think of any other movie where even upon repeated viewings I am frequently screaming and laughing at the same time, screaming because what I'm seeing is so incredible, and frightening that I can hardly stand it, and laughing because I'm overjoyed that it can make me scream. I was so exhilarated after the first time I saw the film that I determined I would watch it many times, but not too frequently, as I didn't want the joy of screaming and laughing to become commonplace. I think the phrase I spoke the most during my first viewing was, what the fuck is that? With each viewing, I find some new thing to examine in one of the creature's transformations, trying to determine what the fuck that is. The actor's performances are brilliant. I had yet to be introduced to the joys of Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China. I had a very sheltered youth, and this movie made me love Kurt Russell with a passion. McCready is double hard, and for whatever weird reason, I want to pet his beard. It's Mm. just so magnificent. The visual effects are simply amazing, even 33 years later, and always fill me with a sense of wonder, disgust, and fear in a good way. The desolation of the setting is perfect, and the psychological horror is just as frightening as the actual murderous alien. I do have a difficult time with the dog kennel scene, as as I am a lover of animals and extremely empathic, and I wonder what the poor pups were thinking as those skinny tentacles burst out and started heading for them. Granted, I'm probably the only person thinking about that and the sounds they make. Oh, the sounds in general throughout the movie. I once watched it with headphones. I could really hear every little noise and sound effect, and it adds so much to the atmosphere. I definitely recommend doing that at least once. Cool. 
Uh, when the Blu-ray release was announced, I was somewhat dubious. I've been burned before on Blu-ray releases of older movies, some of them turning out to be just a crap transfer of the DVD. But lo, the Blu-ray of the thing is wondrous to behold. Yeah, yeah really good. I can see even more details of bits I can't identify. And the one scene where they're at the Norwegian camp and look down at the partially uncovered alien ship, that always looked like a matte painting to me. But when it's cleaned up and remastered, oh, it looks good. There's only one downside for me, and it's not the fault of the film. The scene where Copper is trying to revive Norris and the thing bites... Uh, sorry, the thing Norris bites off Copper's hands and then the head detaches and drags itself away. I love the scene so much, but this last time that I watched it, I made an unfortunate connection that I cannot undo in my brain. Norris's up-down head sprouts spider legs and then grows what I can only now think of as Shrek antennae. Eight weeks of performing in Shrek the Musical did that to me, damn it, and I can't unsee it. That's a shame when that happens, isn't it? Hmm. It doesn't lessen my enjoyment that much, but it's a connection I'd rather not have made. You mentioned that the thing did not do well at the box office, possibly due to the release of E.T. beforehand. Well, let me tell you something about E.T. I fucking hate that film. (laughs) My mother took us all to see it when it came out again. I was nine years old and I was bored out of my mind. I know so many people loved it and more power to them, but I thought it was shite and I haven't watched it since, nor will I watch it again. Uh, You also mentioned the thing video game. Well, gentlemen, this lady has played that game. Oh, good. Unfortunately, I didn't finish it. Oh, but Dave played it a lot more than I did. It was beautifully atmospheric and frightening, very true to the film, but also very frustrating. And I lost interest when I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do to progress. Perhaps I can cajole Dave into sending his own feedback on the game so that you might get a more in-depth review than what I offer. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. Always welcome. Thank you. Uh, I've also seen the original movie and read the short story on which it was based. The Thing from Another World is not what I would call a faithful adaptation. In fact, it's hardly an adaptation at all. There's an alien creature that's found in the ice, gets thawed and starts reproducing. But this thing is not like the original. It's now a plant-based alien life form that can reproduce with the help of blood from another living creature. It's okay, I guess, but not very memorable. The original short story is basically what John Carpenter did with the film. Uh, There are a few variations, and some of the character names are different, but the plot is the same, with the exception that there is no Norwegian base. The thing is discovered by the American research team stationed in Antarctica. I would say that the Carpenter film is the definitive adaptation of the original story, and as that story was originally published in 1938, shows us that the psychological and physical horror elements of this tale are timeless, and for me, so is this film. Well, I've waffled on long enough. Love the podcast, of course. I'll follow Tom's voice anywhere. But Chris, you are the perfect balance for Tom. The show might not work as well, if not for your distinctive personalities. I do love the outtakes at the end. Well, I'm glad you do, because (laughs) it's going to be some this time around. So carry on being strange and deadly, and I'll keep listening and occasionally bugging you with lengthy feedback. Ever yours, Brandy. Thank you, Brandy. And how could I forget, you know, we were talking about female listener before. We've got Brandy. But um... Absolutely. And thank you very much for the compliment you gave me as well. It's really nice. Um, I know that you, I think you heard Tom and I on the uh, Gentleman's Grindhouse episode we did where we kind of reviewed Maniac along with Matt. Um, but I guess you haven't heard much of what I've done, um, probably for the best. Uh, but um, no, it's really nice that you... Um, I love that you, you're, you're very loyal to Tom. 
um, both of you, you've sort of followed him, like you say, you sort of followed him wherever he goes, and um, I hope that I'm not, that I hope that it does work, and I'm not too much of a distraction um, for you, and um, yeah, you've given us a lot of laughs with this feedback, so thank you very much. Cool, alright, thank you again, Brandy. So, we've got some audio feedback from a couple of friends of the show, let's, uh, should we start with Jim? Yes, let's start with Jim Moon, the man with the golden voice. Of course, we told you on the last episode that he's uh, one of the great masters of this, I think. Uh, when you listen to that voice, you're going to listen to me straight afterwards and think that I sound like a complete twat. And you'd be right. Jim Moon, please take it away. Greetings once again, gentlemen. Well, what a double bill you have for us this time. And let me tell you, I nearly got into very deep water searching for the naked fist. Its alternative title of Firecracker is well-deserved, as that's clearly where all the budget went on all those fireworks in the credits. But, in fairness, they did save a few quid in the clothing stakes, with our heroine conveniently losing all of hers at every given opportunity. And as for that knife seduction scene, that guy's an expensive date, isn't he? Won't just cost you dinner, it'll cost you a whole new wardrobe. But in fairness, I wouldn't want them to have spent much more money on it, for I wouldn't have nearly rolled off the sofa laughing when she poked the eyes out of a poor, hapless, chop dummy in the grand finale. And who can forget the wonderful score? Indeed, I know many of you probably really wish you could, thanks to them playing the same bit of Casio keyboard abuse in every other scene. But the film has its high points too, like every punch sounding like a whip crack. Indeed, sounding like exactly the same whip crack. And who can forget use of a cobra in a fight scene? Indiana Jones, eat your fucking heart out. I mean, obviously, this is a terrible movie. But I have to say, it was a highly entertaining terrible movie. Having watched a lot of bad films over the years, I often find most of them just go on a bit too long and the jokes worn flat in the final third. But as Naked Fist slash Firecracker only clocks in at just over 70 minutes, it's absolutely just the right length to sit down with a few drinks and have a jolly good laugh at some prime exploitation nonsense. Foxy Brown, on the other hand, was a very different kettle of, um, well, not fish, probably smack or something like that. Now, I must confess I'd never actually seen this exploitation classic before, And, to be honest, I'm not surprised I haven't, because given um, some of the content, in particular some of the language in this movie, I can see why it's never turned up on late-night TV. I mean, the bad guys in this, they're, well, really, really bad, thoroughly despicable, and probably some of the most racist characters I've ever seen on the screen. Now, I know cinema has delivered us in-depth portraits of bigots before, and in a more serious context. But what was so shocking about these guys was the sheer everyday normalcy of the racism. And while the movie's story is very much a revenge-driven action fantasy, at the same time, this was really presenting an underside of American life, one that was often left under the cinematic carpet. And I can see why it went down a storm with its intended audience, because this film really honestly, and a little bit brutally in fact, shows the harsh realities of pimping, drug addiction, and above all, the absolute casual contempt of contemporary racism. 
Plus, it has to be said, with the main villains being so despicable, it really is satisfying to see them get their comeuppance. Indeed, this is probably the only film where you're actually really, really glad and fist-pumping the air to see a cock in a jar. Now, I know a lot of the tropes seen in Foxy Brown have since been parodied in the likes of uh, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker and Black Dynamite, and at first I did wonder, particularly when Huggy Bear turned up, if I might have some problems taking this movie seriously. However, I think Jack Hill's direction and the general grit in the content keeps you engaged and enthralled rather than enjoying it in a camp and kitsch fashion. Even when you come across certain tropes that have been played for laughs in those aforementioned spoof movies. Blimey, right, I've rattled on for far too long, let me just say. Thanks again for a great show, and thanks again for making me watch more strange and bizarre new movies. And, by the way, never, ever, ever watch Extro 2. Excellent, thank you, Jim. I think uh, Jim got a bit more of a kick from Firecracker. I can see that, you know... I'll, yeah. I'll be honest, I, I might watch it again one day, probably not soon, but just to see whether it can kind of raise itself to that that sort of, you know, be a movie. But we'll see. The jury's out on that one still. I think you want to watch it again because you spent money on it. <laughs> I think you want to get, get the most out of your investment from it. Um, no, I mean, there are certain scenes in there I would definitely... You know, give it, give it another go. And also, you said some uh, stuff about Foxy Brown there as well. It's an important movie, um, so I'm glad you enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, really nice to hear from you. And like I said, it's said last time, it's a bit of an honour, isn't it, really, to um, to hear from Jim to know that he's listening. It makes me want to step up my game, which we didn't do a very good job of when we were reading Brandy's email, which you'll hear in the bloopers. Our professionalism was quite pants. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, Jim. We also have. A final bit of feedback, a piece of audio feedback from a man that we thought was lost at sea um, or uh, chained to a radiator with some strange masked man inserting foreign vegetables into his orifices. Um, As it turns out, he was just busy. It's your friend and mine, Chris Brown. And uh, he has some audio feedback here for us. uh, And uh, take it away, Chris. Hello, gents. Uh, Christopher Brown here. Uh, just give me well first of all to say sorry for not sending anything back in uh, any of you back in for the thing and extra um i'm very busy over christmas and i just didn't get a chance really by the time i actually got around to to watch an extra it was a bit late um which is fine mainly because i you know obviously i don't think i could have added anything to your to your comments in truth uh it's a very strange film i felt possibly if i'd seen it a bit earlier i would have enjoyed it more and the thing is pretty much timeless uh, and peerless in truth for the, for that kind of paranoid horror. No, so instead, let's talk about the two films you're talking about today. Uh, Foxy Brown, first off, which is a fantastic film, a real good mix of exploitation, I think. And uh, you know, I've like a lot of exploitation films, it it totally shifts a lot because it doesn't really know where it wants to be. So you've got scenes of great comedy, like with the uh, the judge. Uh, you know, getting, getting his ass handed to him and then kind of shoved out of the hotel room. And then you've got uh, that kind of flips quite quickly to quite grim stuff, um, you know, with uh, Pam Greer's character uh, being, you know, tied to a bed. It's not, you know, it, it does kind of, when it's exploitative, it's very exploitative. And when it's, um, when it's funny, it's actually really funny. And also there's a great, there's a, great, a couple of great gore scenes in there as well. 
So really fantastic stuff. And obviously, you know, it was one of the films, you know, Pam Grier is just top notch in this, but a lot of characters, a lot of the acting's pretty good for a kind of nice, you know, 1970s, very low budget exploitation film. It does have a bit of a, a lull, you know, around the heart of the 30 minute mark before it kind of really ramps up. But at the same time, I think it does that, you know, it, it is a it is a wonderfully entertaining film. And uh, I think any film which has the billing of the uh, the people who, uh, the person who, who wrote the music and the person who made the clothes for Pangria, uh, they're, they're, they're top billing only behind the producer and the director in the credits, which I think says a lot in terms of how they see that kind of stuff. And I think, uh, you know, people have a lot of nostalgia for black exploitation in the 70s. And I think that's that, it's those kind of, you know, the fact that they are so obsessed is great detail, which is part of that. Um, Naked Fist is, was a new one for me. I'd never seen it before. Um, and in the same way with that, you know, you can see see that the opening credits, and you see the, the you know the, the nod for the music and the, and the and the outfits, and you kind of know what you're in for. With Naked Fist, when it opens up and you see the uh, the music being lifted directly from a Shogun Assassin, you can kind of see that you're in kind of low budget territory, kind of wondering whether they'd actually you know managed to get the rights to that music or just had it off. In the same way that Bruno Mattei took off the uh, Goblin soundtrack for Dawn of the Dead for Zombie Creep and Flesh. Um, I felt uh, with uh, Naked Fist that it was uh, a long watch, really. I struggled with it, even though it's quite short. I mean, really short, really. It's only 75 minutes. And that's mainly because there's not a lot of narrative flow. I didn't really understand what was going on. and then, But then you get this kind of like triple whammy at the end, which is incredible and really odd and doesn't make a lot of sense narratively with the, the, the strip-naked... Um, fight with the gang followed by one of the worst sex scenes i've ever seen in my life uh you know knives are very very rarely sexy uh at all and then a fight scene out of nowhere which seems to kind of she only wins because he lets her win and she like rewards that by kicking him in the back and then stabbing him with two sticks in the eyes so that was weird um so yeah, incredibly low budget. I'm not that knowledgeable about martial arts films, so I'm guessing, but I'm guessing it, it, it isn't a classic by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, probably better known as Firecracker, uh, which is a better name, and also uh, makes more sense the fact that they've got uh, firecrackers going off in the opening credits. Um, anyway, uh, as I said, uh, sorry for not getting back to you last time. I, I really did want to. Uh, as I said, I really loved the thing. Um, just didn't get a chance. Uh, but, you know, looking forward very much to your opinions on these films, and I'm, I'm sure you'll have a lot to talk about, particularly with Naked Fist. But also, uh, next week, next next times, with, uh, I think, uh, Tom will be in his elements if I know him well. So, take care, and I'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. Thank you, Chris. And, you know, no need to apologise, mate. You know, it's a, it's a busy old life these days, and uh, I think we, as far as we're concerned, you been with us from the beginning you know and our and our show is very much a spiritual well not just a spiritual successor an actual successor to your podcast the video nasty yeah. podcast so you're sort of part of the i like to think you're part of the fabric of strange and deadly so you know we we understand if you can't get feedback in any week mate it's just we enjoy it so uh so thanks for taking the time to do it Oh, absolutely. Don't let this get in the way of your life in any way. Um, when you've got time to do it, and this applies to anybody, if you've got time to do it and you want to send something in, that's fantastic. We love to read stuff or listen to stuff. 
Um, and I have to say that I like you even more now, Chris, because you actually brought up Shogun Assassin. Uh, he's the only one who's written to us who actually knew where the music was from. So, uh, so thanks, Chris. And I hope you enjoyed my uh, ridiculous rant about the firecracker earlier on. I'm um, lovely to hear from you. We hope we hear from you on the next one. Um, so, you folks listening out there, we're done. Once again, we scratched two films off our Section 3 list. It's, I think we're doing quite a good job of it, actually. Uh, how do you feel about the journey so far, Tom? It's been good. I like these little diversions, you know. I mean, we're both horror fans. We're both big horror fans. But if it throws up, you know, I know Firecracker was a, a bit of an issue. Um, but you, you got some enjoyment from it too. Um, but it's been a nice diversion from horror movies, I think. And uh, I hope there's a few more of these along the way, you know, when we work our way down that list. So it, it's been good. What are we going to do for the next episode? Well, look, we've, uh, of course, diverged wildly from horror for this episode, but we're going straight back into it. It's interesting. Chris Brown, at the end of his feedback there, he, he said that the next episode we do, the theme of that one, will suit Tom very well. And I guess Chris probably doesn't know that I am also a huge fan of these films and indeed this franchise that we're going to be covering um, on the next episode, Tom, do you want to tell them what the next theme is, the next double bill we're tackling on uh, episode eight is? Absolutely. When we go through this section three list, there are going to be, uh, we've always said, the good thing about it is it goes from the obscure to the well-known. And for every horror fan, this is a well-known franchise. So we're dipping our toe into Friday the 13th because mm-hmm. those first two films were on the Section 3 list. So it will only be those first two two films. Um, and I, re- I remember in the first episode we said, you know, everyone's done the Friday the 13th retrospectives. We like listening to them. We've enjoyed them, but everyone's done them. You know, so we wanted to do something different. And here we are doing Friday the 13th 1 and 2. But, you know, that's okay. Like I say, it, it's it's a change of pace again from – it's different from what we've done this week and i know we're both huge fans so we'll i think we'll bring a lot of that love to it absolutely i mean you know there are going to be bigger films on this list ones that are more mainstream that are less obscure um you've got your firecracker you've got some of the films that are coming up you know extra for example films that are really quite obscure that not not that many people have seen um and then you're going to have films like this the friday the 13th films um and the first two films are very interesting um quite sort of influential in this in the slasher genre so we're both big fans of slashers so yes i'm uh, looking forward to the next episode we'll try and give you you know sort of different spin on it but at the end of the day there's two guys talking about films that are on a list um the reason i'll just say the reason i chose these films uh, tom of course paired them and i did the schedule the reason i i chose them for february is because there is a friday the 13th in february unfortunately because we came back a bit later than we had intended to, the episode will actually go out after the Friday the 13th. There's nothing we can do about that. Um, so, you know, if you're just wondering, well, wouldn't it have made more sense to release it on Friday the 13th or near the 13th? Well, unfortunately, you know, the schedule just didn't quite line up for that. But yes, Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2. It's a Friday the 13th theme, and we will be covering that on the next episode, which will be with you in two weeks from when you listen to this one, probably. Um, that's it, guys. That's the end. So before we go, uh, we of course need to give you our contact details. First of all, if you want to uh, submit any feedback to us, you know, please do so. We're getting a lot of feedback from from people we know, and that's brilliant. But if you're out there, you've never written to us before, please do. You know, contact us. Let us know how you're feeling about things. Talk about some of the films 
we're going to be covering you can email us at feedback at strange and um, you can find us on twitter at twitter.com forward slash strange deadly no and in there uh, tom how can they find you uh, i am grindhouse tom on twitter mm-hmm. and i am the gore boy on twitter you can also find me uh, on instagram instagram.com forward slash the chris clayton um, and look out for my golden oldies podcast which is basically a bunch of uh, my old podcasts uh, gore boy radio it's an old show i used to do um, years ago they were lost seemingly forever tom managed to find a whole bunch of them and we will start releasing them on the 18th of February. Now, I will, of course, if you contact me on Twitter or look at my Twitter, you'll find more information there over time. I'll make sure I let everybody know um, in good time for it. It's going to basically be released um, every fortnight, I believe. Is that right, Tom? That's right, yeah. The uh, the Gentleman's Grindhouse, my old podcast, uh, goes out on a Wednesday, and it's going to be alternate weeks with Gore Boy Radio. Yeah, so they're just old shows recorded, I don't know, six or seven years ago, so... Um, they're pretty old now, uh, but hey, if you're perhaps new to me, you haven't heard me before, you want to listen to some of the old stuff I did, uh, probably not very good, but it's going to be there for you anyway. Of course, go to gentlemansgrindhouseRecords.com. You'll find a lot of information about all the podcasts we do. We're sort of building up a little network there, aren't we? Yeah. And yeah. Um, you go there, you can find that information. There's even an episode schedule on there where you can see what we're tackling in the weeks to come. So that's it from us, guys. Take care of yourselves, and we will see you in another fortnight. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Hello, all you beautiful people out there who uh, spend a little chunk... Blah, 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 blah. See, I already fucked it up right from the beginning. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> early on in her... Ve- <clears throat> early on in her investig... Uh, early on in her... <laughs> <laughs> early on in it. <laughs> oh, dear. Please don't let don't let me get stuck talking about this. Doing nonsense. so well. Go on. <laughs> now you're gonna make me crack up every time I read it. Hang on. <clears throat> oh dear. <laughs> Early on. <laughs> Come on, hold it together. Oh, <laughs> hold it together, okay. son. All right. Yeah, nurse me through this time. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in the threesome with it with them, haven't you?
<laughs> a three-way podcast, you mean? Pop, pop one up, Dave. Before. <laughs> Fuck off, man! You can't put that. In. <laughs> Gonna have to leave that out, man. You can't leave. That out. Okay. Okay, and Brandy says. <laughs> oh, I can't even put that in the bloopers. Oh, <laughs> what a shame. If you'd have said that you've been in a threesome with them and and then just, and I'd have said a three way podcast, yeah, but then you had to add about putting put one up to you. <laughs> <clears throat> McCready is double hard. <laughs> <laughs> Good old McCready. Yeah, double hard McCready. McCready is double hard, and for whatever weird reason, I... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Brandy. Just double hard makes me laugh. Yeah, we're having a bit of a giggle fit at the moment, Brandy. Okay. You might hear some of it in the bloopers as well. McCready is double hard. (laughs) (laughs) It's not you, it's us. (sighs) He is double hard. Okay, I'm just thinking of it the wrong way. (laughs) Okay, I'll say it differently. (sighs) (sighs) Okay. That was me slapping my own face. Okay. Good man, good man. Good man. Right, I'm going to power through it. Yes. Be fine. McCready is double hard. (laughs) (laughs) Double hard. Why did you have to put double hard? Okay. Um, Oh dear, some of this has got to go in the bloopers. (laughs) We've been doing so well. Does double hard mean have an American meaning? (laughs) Oh, sorry, Brandy. <laughs> you just changed it. McCready is really great, or something. Like. <laughs> oh dear. Trying. Maybe I should go over the other side of the room. And I see can't. I can't even look at it. Hold on. <laughs> oh boy. <sighs> right. <clears throat> Professionalism. Yeah. <clears throat> right. Okay. Brandy goes on to say, <laughs> right, Brandy, 